And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, yes, man? Yes, Steve. It's that time again. It is time to give the people. we got to give the people what they want. And John's jingle career just keeps growing. I'm trying, man. Just keeps growing. And before we get into today's fascinating topic, just a reminder that if you haven't checked out the Running Scholar program, which comes in with the Scholar Clubhouse, you should. Here's an update on what is going down. So here's what I'm loving in the Scholar Clubhouse is we just had a bunch of people without John or I's input go through post pictures dissect running form, show some video, circle some arm carriages, and like have this wonderful conversation that then, you know, John jumped in, but this wonderful conversation on, okay, what does running look like? What are these things I'm seeing? What do I do about this? How does this impact things? And I think this is the this is the brilliance of having a space where you can have actual discussions and not get told you're an idiot on social media. <laughs> well, the whole point is enlightenment, right? And you know, there's a lot of fun things like we have the enlightenment project, right? That's going on strong, where people just dropping in spoken or written word, PDFs, books, articles are reading, which they feel have merit and value. Like one scholar is like, I just literally can't keep up with the wealth of, you know, uh, material that's being presented in there. I'm just buying things every week, you know, books every week. And like my own awareness is going through the roof. We also have a new channel called the Worthwhile Listening and Viewing. Uh, channel where people are now dropping in podcasts or videos they're seeing and saying, hey, I found this. This is really interesting or this really helped me think more clearly about this thing. We got uh, scholars co-opting and, you know, excited for a development of this mental workshop that one scholar has been doing with her athletes. She's on to like version 2.0. It is an exciting place to be. I mean, there's scholars in the UK who love it. They're like, oh yeah, when I wake up, it's, you know, their morning is our afternoon and evening. I just pop onto the clubhouse, see what the chatter is. And every day I learn something new. Every day I learn something interesting that I can take and apply. That's the point. So it only gets bigger and better by the number of people who are in the community. So join. It's a dollar a day. It's best deal on the internet. I promise you, you know, and your continued education and development, that investment, as Warren Buffett says, is the best investment you can make because it is safeguarding against inflation, right? You know, in the knowledge and education does not get devalued with inflation or um, does not fluctuate. The Becoming the best at what you do or better at what you do will always have value no matter the current financial circumstance. That's right. Keep leveling up. That's all you, you got to do is keep leveling up. You do that always have a skill to utilize in our world. And in my opinion, coaching is one of the best skills you have because yes, it applies to running, but the lessons translate to just about everything else. So keep leveling up your game. That's what it's all about. 
All right. Let's speaking of coaching. Well, we are on the on coaching podcast, so let's yeah, that's what we talk about. Let's let's do this. This week's episode, the head case phenomenon. Why blaming athletes for poor performance is a cop out. So, all right. Now, this is this is this is one of my actually favorite topics to to discuss because it drives me nuts. And we've all been guilty of it. But how many times have you had a coach sit there and their athlete performs poor and they just can't figure it out, et cetera, et cetera, and they just say, ah, no, little Johnny and Jenny, they're a head case. And what happens? This is the part that is most interesting. What happens when you label someone a head case? You're giving away responsibility. You're saying, it's all in their head. It's not on me. I can't figure it out. It's not anything I'm doing in the training or coaching. It's all in their head. And that gives you permission, essentially, to stop trying to figure out how to get the best out of them. You're able to just, you know, say, ah, responsibility is not, not on me. I can justify this. I can explain it. Any other coach asks me, I'm just like, ah, it's a head case. And every coach will know what I mean. And I think this does a huge disservice because it's a stop sign for learning, adapting, and growing. It's a stop sign for our responsibility to help an athlete. And more than that, it's a label that has no meaning. Because what does head case mean? We don't know. It doesn't we don't know what they're struggling with. We don't know why they're struggling with it. We don't know what's keeping them from performing well. We've just given them this kind of nebulous label that doesn't provide inf any information, that is a negative connotation, and gives us permission to stop thinking about it. So, again, all of us have said it, but I think it's one of the things that we need to get rid of because if we don't, it's just doing our athletes a disservice, and it stops us from learning, growing, and figuring out how to fix the problems. Yeah, it's, you know, indicative of a very linear mindset, right? So, like, we see this a lot with running and running coaches. It's like, all right, we're going to get the splits, and you run the splits, and you get the splits, and that's the thing. And it's like, we got to understand, like, it's even though people might have a you know, reductionist or what I call Frankenstein part, you know, just focusing on a small part of the puzzle, physiological approach. It's actually a neuropsychophysiological model, which is combining neurology, psychology, physiology, all into one unitary, inseparable whole. And when we understand that, we understand that the neurological things that happen manifest thoughts or perceptions, which also manifest chemical reactions, which have physiological um, um, responses. So this whole chain of events is, as we've said, is under the coach's purview. Just saying I give the prescription of dosage of the splits to run or the race plan, and I give a direct and control approach, and then the athlete didn't follow it because their perception of that reality, that race is a threat. 
and you didn't address their threat perception, or you didn't give them coping mechanisms or visualization. And as um, you know, Verkashansky often cites, visualization is important because all muscle action first happens in the brain. And so by creating a more direct or familiar pathway for that, when you visualize movement, visualize how you're doing something, that rehearsal, it does have merit. It does have import, even though we can't track it, so to speak, with some number, the value of visualization in both the first person experience, as well as the third party experience where you're viewing yourself doing that activity has been proven to work time and time again for even the simplest tasks. So when a coach says they're really prepared and we're just talking about their physical body is prepared because they've done all this workload for, you know, a season, you know, several years, what have you, but then they get to race day and they have quote unquote, a mental block and you don't know why. Well, it's really because they're in a sympathetic state a, f a flight or fright state and they are frightened and there's this threat. And so you got to get down to the root cause of what's the threat because they're perceiving the situation as threatening versus invigorating, exciting, exploratory. Let's see what we can do. Let's get after it versus, oh, the weight of the world's on my shoulder. If I don't do this, then there's all these repercussions or I let people down. And, you know, that's a very important thing to unpack. But that's why we ideally should run invite races with a lot of, um, you know, high level competition. That's why we have preparatory meets that have that allow us to work on different facets of race preparation execution, not to just go get the time, go get the time, go get the time, which has become unfortunately the default, but to help cope, help that athlete cope and find those mental gaps. So that when you get to the tournament, when you get to the big race, they are well prepared and have strategies to cope with the threat or inconsistencies or uh, variables that are unplanned. So it does not become this five alarm fire. So you mentioned two things that I think are really important there is one, you need to get at what's the problem and where is it coming from? Why do they see things as a threat? You know, that could be from the motivation. It could be from pressure. It could be from expectations. It could be from a lot of different things. But you've got to diagnose that. And then the second thing that I think is, is, is as important is once you figure out why they see things as a threat, how do you free them up? How do you equip them with the mental skills to be able to navigate things? And to this, I'll give you an example, John. As, as you know, my wife's an elementary school teacher. Elementary school kids, first graders, occasionally throw tantrums. Why do little kids throw tantrums? It's pretty simple. They don't know how to navigate or understand what's going on inside. They don't understand that, like that feeling of frustration, how to handle it or cope with it or adapt to it. So they freak out. And if you go ask, you know, if you talk to, again, some five, six year olds, it makes sense why they, they can't at that point, right? Their mental models are very simple. You ask them how something bad makes them feel, 
and they'll describe it with, oh, I'm sad. Right? I'm sad. What does that mean? Well, there's multitudes of levels of sadness from, you know, disappointment, frustration, (laughs) you know, whatever have you. But at that level, they can only describe it in this narrow band. So what do we try and do with with elementary school kids? We try and develop their vocabulary. We try and develop their skills. Hopefully, as a parent, you're developing their skills to cope with and do difficult things and navigate. And we put them in youth sports where it hopefully teaches them how to lose unless a parent screws that up, right? It's no different in our own and when we're working with athletes. We have to teach the skills. We do it in we do it in the physical. You teach someone running mechanics, you teach someone how to pace, you teach someone how a particular workout should feel and go and do all these things. But often in the psychological mental, we just say, you know what? Go be tough. Go figure it out. <laughs> Go figure it out. So I think those two things, it's it's step one is if someone has a mental, like this mental block, well, you think they're a head case. Where's it coming from? And then the second is equip them with the skills to navigate that so they can free themselves up to perform. And so... Maybe I'll start with, okay, how do you figure this out? This is where coaching relationships and conversations are so important. And this is why, again, the kind of authoritarian approach, I think, backfires so much. Because if someone has a, has a, uh, a, a, you know, a psychological roadblock, we'll call it, the only way you can figure that out is if they're open, honest, and vulnerable, right? Because... The authoritarian style teaches us, oh, don't don't share that stuff. Like that that means you're weak. Well, if they don't share that stuff and you think and they think it means they're weak, you're never going to get to the bottom of it. And in my own coaching, I'm sure you have, you know, especially at the college level and high school level. Sometimes it would be like, oh, why can't you? Why? What's getting in the way? Well, expectations from mom and dad, right? You take you go to the invite far away where mom and dad aren't there, and all the kid, all of a sudden this kid performs, and you're like, "This is a bigger meet. What's your deal? Oh, mom and dad aren't here. This was what's getting in the way, right? Sometimes it's expectations surrounding you know that they've put on themselves or that you as a coach have put on them. Sometimes it's just you know motivational upbringings where they think the thing that matters is the time or the trophy and they've never been taught that 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 thing doesn't matter and that what you care about is x y and z over here that actually matters so getting to the bottom of why what is the thing that makes racing this experience that is filled with joy of exploring of expressing as you know, the prefontaine quotes would be the artist artistry of it. How did we get take that and take it to this thing that we're afraid of? We're afraid of failing. We're afraid of putting ourselves out there and risk taking risks. How did that come to be? And that is your job whenever you see someone who's underperforming. I think yeah, you're you know spot on. What we have to fight and 
you know, this might be a little tangent or rant more than ever is the, um, the culture or, you know, comfort of face value. And I see this a lot now. It's like everyone wants to just take things at face value because face value is easy. So you run a time, you're then this time runner always. And if you deviate from that, there's trouble. Well, let's talk about like, say, if you're a high school or senior, it's your last week of classes, you have pro big projects due, you have um, a college decision to make, you have the senior social or signing day. There's a lot of stimulus thrown at you that week, and there's a lot of things that need to get done. And then all of a sudden, oh, we got this meet too, and it's the end of the season, so you're tapering, so you should run really fast at this, you know, little invite meet or dual meet and it doesn't happen and go what's wrong with them they're a head case no that's just a lot of stimulus and a lot of stress right and you as a coach have to be able to understand that like what else is going on in someone's world away from the track away from race day away from running because all that stuff has a big influence on how that person can cope and that bandwidth right of what we call willpower is a finite resource and if you're, they're using a lot of willpower to meet deadlines and go through all these pumps and circumstance or deal with outside stressors, they're going to have very little to no willpower to be able to kind of press and keep pressing when they go from, you know, what I call orange lining it to redlining it, right? And that's going to have some impact as well. So that's what I mean by like, when we just look at the surface things or shallow interpretations and face value. And you say, well, they've been running these times in practice all year. How come this didn't happen today? That does a disservice not only to yourself as a practitioner, but also to those under your charge because you're not really digging a little deeper and going under the surface to get at the root cause. So that import of kind of, you know, as they say, like looking under the rug and having a more curious mind and understanding like it's not always a linear straightforward relationship this input in equals that input out and championing that to your athletes is important too and that's i think really critical that starts with the coach starts with day 1 and you're you know consistent with that and you understand it but do have expectations do create you know maps and pathways for people to execute on race day and then be able to talk about their execution strategy and grade them on their ability to execute in certain segments. So, you know, in this clubhouse, scholars have asked to, for me to elaborate kind of on the race strategy I give high school kids, right? And in general, we just separate it into four different segments. So in the 3K, it's basically 800 meter segments, right? In the 800s, 200 meter segments. In the 15, it's a little different, um, different types of segments because the 15 has different types of moments in it. But it's all reflective of the moment. And so once I wrap the kid's head around these segments, we then start to execute appropriately in each segment and then teach them the path of executing appropriately in that segment. So in the 800, right, I always tell them it's the fastest, freshest segment. This is going to be your fastest 200 because you're freshest. And that's good. Then the following uh, 200 around the turn, coming down that home straightaway to the bell, I go, you're going to then kind of, as the old timers say, float, or you're going to kind of step off the gas a little bit, but not slow down, but your effort level, you're going to give yourself kind of a mental breather 
as you position yourself. And so it's about positioning. So I go fast and then position, right? Or fast and then fight. Because I'm reminding high school kids that you need to fight for position to own that position because you got to establish it is a really critical um, learning for them, especially in a very aggressive event like the 800. Then at the bell, I go, okay, fast again, because that penultimate 200, that third segment, is again, time and time again, tends to be the second fastest 200 because people, you're again, the freshest you're going to be for that moment before deceleration hits in the final 200. And you can't, you know, physiologically navigate out of that deceleration or high degree of acidosis that's coming as a byproduct of, say, what um, the Russians or Soviets call analytic or, excuse me, anaerobic glycolytic power, where again, you're generating all this acidosis because you're using all this glycogen to make that um, high level uh, submaximal speed happen. So they got to take advantage of that. And so we go fast again. And then the last 200 is just about fight, 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 fight. It's a game of will, right? It's, you know, understand the mechanics of running, getting that foot down quickly, getting a quick reaction, keeping your arm tempo swing as, as rapid as possible as you're decelerating because everyone's decelerating. And so we leverage it like that. It's two 200s of fast and two 200s of fight. And so then afterwards we talk about, all right, were the fast 200s fast? And did you fight on the fight 200s? And grade yourself. My first ask question to every every athlete, high school athlete after any 100 is, tell me how to go, how the segments go. Grade yourself. What do you think? Before I say anything, because I want them to relay their experience. And then from there, we can have a dialogue about their perception of it. But if I just say, you got to run this split, this split, this split, and I just yell at time and say, pick it up, pick it up. And I hear it all the time. It's like, it's really impossible to pick it up the last 200 of an 800 because of all the metabolic substrates <laughs> that are just flooding this it's damn near impossible. <laughs> you can yell, pick it up all you want, but it's not happening. So rather than tell them to do something that is, you know, impossible to do and then make them feel like a failure. Oh, can you try harder next time? It's like empower them with reality and then walk them through it and rehearse, 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 rehearse. Cause that's what a lot of races are before the uh, big race or the championships, they're dress rehearsals so that then when they get to that environment with all the hoopla, all the you know athletes who are the best in their division, their state, region, whatever, they can really focus and zoom in, as Phoebe Wright you know, famously said, on what they need to do and how they need to execute and not get distracted and not worry about the externals and focus on what they can do internally. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that is such an important point. And I think that one of the things that you need to be clear on as a coach is what are you coaching towards? What are you kind of, um, what are the instructions or the emphasis you're giving? You gave some race instructions there. You can do the same thing on like the psychological side of, well, what are we trying to accomplish in this race? What's the goal? What are we trying to work on? And I think when you do that, then you set yourself up, you frame races correctly, where then you can have something, A, to get better at, evaluate, 
instead of just going with the kind of black or white, oh, did I run faster than my PR or not? Or did I run faster than this or not? Or did I win this race or not? When you have something to come back on, it shifts that expectation, right? Where a successful race can be maybe not your fastest time, but something where you executed everything really well based on the expectations that you set. Set. I think as a coach, you have that power. The other thing that I'd say as well is whenever I see someone locked in on like this kind of poor performance rut, and I think that, oh, there's, of course, there's a mental component to it. There's a mental component to everything. I always think my job is to dislodge, right? How do I change this race up? How do I shift the expectations? How do I shift the things we're judging on? If a lot of times, if, for example, for a while we spent our time maybe on something like John, you just described, and we have these tactics and all this stuff, et cetera, and we've gone tactics, tactics, tactics. Well, if they're still like feeling that, that, that block, then it's time to go the opposite way, right? It's time to say, hey, like, give me your watch. Like, take it off. Nothing on races. Like, we're going after this feeling. Or, like, this is what we're trying to do. Or I just want you to get out, you know, and compete with X, Y, and Z. Or one of the things I love to do is say, hey, in this race, I want you to help your teammate out. Maybe someone who's just a little bit, you know, just within their wheelhouse or a little bit slower. And you say, hey, your job's to bring Johnny through. Like, get him through 1,200 of that mile. And then you can go, but really bring Johnny through. And that shifting of that mindset or that expectation or that focus often can get people back into, oh, this is what it's like to race. Oh, this is what it's like to run. And in cross country, I do this all the time where it's because cross country is more it's team sport, all this stuff. If someone individually was struggling, it's like, hey, you know, run with run with this pack, like get these people through halfway so that you can like that'll help our team more than you just being out on your own. Like get them through halfway in this midseason race so that they understand how to race cross country and all this stuff. You do that. And all of a sudden, this person remembers what it's like to run in race for joy of it and not the expectations pressure. So thinking of different ways how you can take that off or change or dislodge that or what I often think is like turn around and look the other way. Like what's something else? What's the opposite approach that that they've been doing? If I can give them that or put them in this place to go that other direction, often it frees that burden off of mm, I like it. I I take a, you know, a little different approach. My default is to enhance. Because I what I find with a lot of athletes I've worked with, even, you know, the post-collegiate athletes, is they have a poor self-concept or a, a you know, and a lot of negative talk about themselves on race day, especially bigger race days, right? And it's easy to do because we live with ourselves 24 seven and we know our faults. We know our weaknesses. We know our blemishes. 
we know that we're not strong people all the time and we've messed up and erred and, you know, been in the wrong. So, you know, there's a couple of strategies I've used to enhance someone's self-concept or identity in a highly competitive, stressful situation like racing. One is just to have them play a role, be someone completely different, like an actor or an actress, right? So you're not you, you're someone else. Like how, say, Beyonce talks about her stage performer identity is not the real every day-to-day Beyonce that just lives life, right? Because that person's weak, that person's different, that person has all these faults. The stage performer is this role she steps into, this alter ego, so to speak, that then elevates to this this entity that can sing these songs and do these dance moves and do all this performance. And that's really what we're doing on race day. It's a performance. So I had an athlete who was just the nicest, sweetest person. I mean, you know, she would like give homeless people like a dollar on the street. She would just amazing sweetheart, just phenomenal. But on race day, 10 minutes before the race, she's going to eat your fucking brains. Like, pardon my French. Like, she turned into a different creature. Like, don't, I was like, oh, can't talk to her now because she's, she had to get really angry or pissed off to perform well. And I mean, going for the juggler, right? Because she wanted to win. But she understood, like, the, the sweet, compassionate, you know, amazing person that I am on the day to day basis will just abdicate and let people go ahead of me. So I have to create this alter ego only for race day that is saying, no, this is mine and you are not going to take this out of my, you know, hands as long as there's, you know, my heart is beating. I mean, it was a phenomenal shift. <laughs> so, so I, I, I love this and I've used this before too. And, and I think sometimes like listeners or people hear this are like, what, you want me to fake it? No, no, no. Like, you do this all the time. We all do. Yeah, we, we all, we like to think of ourselves as like a singular, you know, identity or role. Constant, but the reality yeah, is, no, Mm-mm. we're not. I mean, think, think about it like this. Teenagers are a great example. Think back, way back to John and Steve in, in teenage land. Did we act the same at school with our friends as we did at home in front of our parents? Nope. Like, yeah, you're the same person, but chances are you wouldn't say the same things. You wouldn't act entirely the same way. You'd be more outgoing maybe than and have a conversation with your friends more so than mom or dad sometimes, right? You wear different hats. No different than if you're religious. If you go to church on Sunday, you're going to act a different way than you do, you know, out on the bars on Saturday night. Right. Or right? baby talk to a baby versus the next day you're giving this, you know, PowerPoint on, you know, rocket science. Like it, it, we wear different hats. We put on different roles. And I think this is such an important concept is that you can do the same for racing. You can flip the switch and play a different role or tap into a different motivation or a different style than you do in your everyday life. And that's okay. That's fine. That is part of who you are. We do it all all the time. It's preferred. I mean, that's what sports should teach us is how to deal in a healthy way with confrontation 
and competition by developing different dimensions of our being. And that's what I, going back to the face value thing, right? The idea that we have this static unitary personality and there's only one dimension to it is complete bunk as we just talked about. And so this is a healthy way to create, explore, manifest, and grow different dimensions of your character. Yes, I think it's complexity with coherence, yeah. right? You need it to make sense, but you need some co complexity around it. And if you look at actually the research in psychology, what is wisdom but complexity, richness, like diversity of thought and experience? And I think that's what we're getting at here is that different environments will invite different roles, and we have to match our role with the environment we have or that we're given. That And different people will perform. You know, some people need to get fired up. Some people need to be calm, cool, collected. Some people need to get angry. Some people need to zoom the F out and get perspective. Some people need to zoom all the way in and think that this is the only thing that matters in my life for the next five, 10, 15 minutes, and this is where it's at. You've got to know where you tend to perform best and then figure out different strategies to figure out how to get you in that place. And everyone has had a great performance sometime in their life. And this is where, as a coach, you can't call someone a head case if you haven't addressed these coping skills and help grow or manifest these different dimensions. And so one concrete activity I like to do with athletes is, you know, when we're first starting out, I say, tell me about or think about a time or a moment when you were really strong or felt really powerful or, you know, things went your way, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it cannot be in sport. It can be in the classroom, you know, uh, at home, doing something, whatever, right? We've all had this moment of really high efficacy and, you know, this sensation of competency and confidence and just, man, I did that. Wow. You know, for me, it was um, at 10 years old, my father had me hike up to the summit of Mount St. Helens on a really crummy day. <laughs> like it was snowing and raining and windy. And, you know, he gave me every opportunity to go back. He's like, go, you know, we can turn around, you know, this is really tough. Like you're only 10 years old. And I go, you know, and he, I told him like, yes, it's windy. Yes, it's cold. Yes, it's rainy. And yes, we're going for it. Right. And he made this little plaque and it hung in our house. And because his 10 year old son telling him like, Hey, we're going to the top. Don't care. Let, let's go for it. You know, wasn't sure if we were going to make it, but it was about the journey. Right. So that was a really formative moment in my young life. And thankfully, my father is a clinical psychologist. So when I started getting competitive sports, he would use that as my anchor moment to say, hey, look, no matter the adversity, no matter the difficulty, no matter how you feel, remember what 10-year-old Johnny said, because that's a key part of who you are. And I didn't, you know, no one, you know, developed that. It's just your innate, inherent you know, confidency, competence, and positiveness about life. So use that to your advantage. And so then we would talk about different racing 
strategies and different racing and competitive moments, playing basketball, soccer, running, what have you. Um, but it always come back to that anchor moment and reminding me of kind of quote unquote, my, my best self in a, um, diverse and uncertain world, which we, you know, we, we go through in sport, but also in life and saying, Hey, no matter what, you're going to go for it and win, lose or draw. Just as long as you say you went for it, you're better off for going for it. Right. And so that helped me and the other athletes, other, other moments might have manifest early on in their life that they remember. So by asking an athlete to remember what I call that anchor moment, then we can use that anchor moment to help leverage their perception and direction for different competitive moments. And also being really, really honest with each other too, as athlete and coach. Like I ask athletes in big races, you feeling a lot of pressure or they'll say, oh, how are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling nervous. Okay. What kind of nervous? What are you nervous about? And they'll tell me, oh, I'm worried about this or that and that. I go, okay, that's, that's perfectly valid. <laughs> I'd be nervous too. What can you control? And then we go back to what the controllables, right? The race execution, the technique, the form, uh, adherence to discipline of form and mechanics, knowing where and where to put the foot in the ground, create force application. So we infuse them with a lot of controllables. And then we say, hey, just focus on executing the controllables in the different segments. That's all you can do. And I always give them an encouragement, like say if we're at a big invite for the high school kids, right? And they're about ready to make the quote unquote time leap. And I go, these time leaps are asymmetrical. They happen because we get a lot of fast people around each other. And you know what? Fast people do fast things. And the reason you're here is because you're fast. So you're one of the fast people. So you're going to do some fast things today. It'll be exciting. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but fast people do fast things. Or athletes who might struggle with kind of um, seeing themselves as like, quote unquote, tough or overcoming adversity. I say, hey, tough people do tough things. And you're tough. And so again, by creating this positive cycle of encouragement wedded with tangible moments of evidence of anchoring that actually happen because you need that evidence to build confidence and to infuse that confidence. They can then go quote unquote, take the leap. They feel confident. Hey, I can go try, but without both the evidence as well as the encouragement, it's very tough. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things with confidence we often get wrong is that confidence needs evidence. We have to get have, have to have to the evidence. <laughs> you know, Otherwise, it's just we, raw rods. <laughs> yeah, it's faking faking it. Your brain is too smart. Yeah. Your body's too smart. It's gonna know. So you've got to have it the evidence. That means like you have to do the preparation. You'd have to do the mental and physical work to be able to give your body and, and brain enough to be like, oh yeah, I've, I've put in the work. I'm good. I'm good to go. So I think that's a very important co uh, component of it um, as well. I think the other thing that really matters here is that we have to use practice deliberately to teach some of these lessons is yes, races can be, you know, important as well but it's a it's like a graduated stress response right no different than we have with our physical stuff if we can inoculate or adapt in practice and learn some of these skills then we're going to have the confidence to use them in a race and then we're gonna have the confidence and the ability in a race to like you know utilize them learn from them adapt and grow so one of the things that we tried to do 
when I was at Houston is occasionally have workouts or like give guidance, not only on like, Hey, what is this workout for physically, but what do I want you to practice on mentally? Uh, Brian Barraza would call it today is a day that I'm going to let my mind go to a bad place and practice because, and you talked about amplifying earlier. He would be like, I'm going to amplify those thoughts, those negative thoughts and doubts and like the pain and all this stuff and not care as much about the uh, the splits and just let my mind go to a bad place and then figure my way out of it, right? And you can mentally rehearse and practice those things where, and you can even combine this with the physical where it's like, yeah, you know, maybe it's best to pace 10, 400s and 60 with 60 seconds rest. But maybe you screw that up and on number three, you go run 56. That's going to put you in a bad place. Now you got to figure out how to get out of that. And what I mean how to get out of that is not physically, but mentally, how do you deal with that? And that, again, it's this simulation where train the tools that you teach. Put them, teach the tools, then put them in a place where they can train those up, experiment, etc. So that could be visualization, it could be self-talk, it could be turning your attention, it could be flipping that switch or having a roll, it could be zooming in or zooming out. Whatever you want to do it, there's a myriad of different ways or like visualization, looking at yourself in first person or thinking about yourself in third person or like imagining how you'll feel in the future. Our minds are our master manipulators of how we pro- pro- process and see the world. And we can take advantage of this to get through really difficult challenges. But only if we've trained our body and our brain to be able to go there before. So in practices, figure out how to go there. And I think, you know, several years ago, I... um I did this, I, I did these, a bunch of these surveys during practice and then right after races to see where athletes' attention was going. And then in, in practice, they scored high on thinking about things later. Like, hey, what do I have to do? When am I going to meet my friends for coffee? Et cetera, et cetera. Just thinking about things later. Even during hard workouts, their mind would go there sometimes. And of course it does. Why? Because practice is a safe environment. They know that, yeah, it's going to be difficult, but I'll focus when it's difficult and the rest of the time I'll just kind of get through it. But in races, no one's thinking about what they're doing later. You know, no one's thinking about, oh, I'm going to go get coffee with Jimmy after this. Racing is very intentional. Your mind and attention goes somewhere else. So what I learned from that is pretty simple. They're not training their attention skills for what they're going to use in races and practice. They're just trying to get through things and understandably. But we can take advantage of that and say, hey, during races, this is what you tend to think about it. This is where your mind tends to go. Well, let's prepare for it. Let's have some, some ability to manipulate or redirect or shift 
that attention just like we would in a race. So, I, you know, this is where I think, again, it just comes down to practices. Practice is training, not just from a physical standpoint, but also from a psychological standpoint. And that's why I like the segments, right? Because it keeps you, as they say, on task. Because it's easy to get off task and start to future trip and project mid-race. Oh, I feel crummy now. I'm probably going to feel if I push it even more crummy later, right? And the reality is you feel crummy no matter what. Like, it's just you feel less crummy afterwards because, like, the time or the place might be more favorable. But, you know, when you're in that red line area, hard's hard. And it's always going to be hard. Whether it's a second per lap or two second per lap differential makes a little difference, right? But the mind can make into this big difference. So by, you know, practicing and talking about concrete landmarks within a race or mapping strategy, you're allowing people to stay on task. And that's the encouragement. Just focus on just this task, this segment. That's it. Can't think about anything ahead. And, you know, training of the physical, we talk about it a lot, is about embarrassing the body and getting it to cope and be able to operate in highly stressful environments, right? That it at first wasn't able to do. That's the whole point of creating a highly stressful workout, creates a stress response, the stimulation, we recover, adapt, and we're better able to cope with it, right? So uh, avoidance is not the key. And that's what we tend to do psychologically on race day sometimes. So we want to avoid bad thoughts, avoid the dark place, avoid, avoid, just only good, good vibes only. We want to avoid, no, you can't avoid this stuff because it's going to happen. So if you go with an avoidance strategy, well, let's say if you do no acidosis tolerance workouts for a middle distance runner, and you just avoid that type of work in general in training. Well, when they meet that type of barrier or physiological reality at the end of their race, they're going to be very ill prepared to cope with it. So we do some acidosis tolerance workouts so they can tolerate it, not overcome it, but tolerate it just long enough to outpace their competitor, right? That's the hope. Same thing when we're talking about dealing with the realities and not ignoring the dark place. And that's, you know, time and time again, talking to us like Alan Webb or Leo Manzano, like both of them knew it was time to retire when they're like, I could no longer go to the dark place and come out ahead or, or be able to like fight, fight it because their even minds drifted and wandered and had all these negative thoughts. And for them, you know, the onus was much higher, right? Like silver medalist, American record holder. Everyone expect them just to be robots and have a bravo performance every race. And you even saw it with like, say, Leo, up and down, down Joneser, right? He'd bomb a big Diamond League meet and then come back, you know, and run like 350 the next week. And you're like, what the heck happened? And it wasn't anything physical. It's just the ability to be able to cope with different situations and be mentally uh, robust and mentally fortified to embrace and digest those negative demons and then be able to fend them off and have tools at your disposal to then be able to fight with them and be victorious. So I love that you did that with Brian, Steve, because it's like, you have to deal with the demons. You can't ignore them. And so often we try to ignore them and make this like really like homeostatic, oh, good vibes only, la la land. Yeah, just be happy all the time. And it, <laughs> it just blows up in our face. 
So so here's the nuance on that. I agree completely. Um, where we often get wrong is we either go to the extreme of, oh, yeah, good stuff, like never think about the demons. Or we have the other extreme, the old school football coach who's like, oh, just tackle your demons, but never teaches the skills to be able to do so. Right. And that's the wedding that matters is it's we have to do we have to embrace the the discomfort. We have to embrace the suck. But as coaches, we also have to. With young people, especially young people who often maybe haven't done something that difficult that has exposed them expose them to this like inner devil and have to navigate it we have to give them the the skills or teach them the skills to be able to do so and it's when those two things are wedded that good stuff happens and i think that's why circling all the way back to the beginning of this well the head case phenomenon this is why it you know uh, upsets both of us so much is because it takes the responsibility away. It makes it where you don't tackle those two, two things. You just shrug your shoulders and like, oh, they're a head case. We'll never figure it out. Or, you know, they're a head case. Like, why, why bother? It's their fault, not my responsibility. Instead of seeing it as your responsibility of, I've got to put them in situations where they've got to embrace the demons, they've got to embrace the discomfort, and... As a coach, it's my job to help prepare them and give them the skills, the skill sets to do so. And when we do that, good things happen. And every, and John, I, I'm sure you'd agree is that no one is born with all of these skills. Heck no. <laughs> the best, you know, we've both been fortunate to work with, you know, national champions and all of them go through periods where they struggle with this stuff too. Would you call a, you know, a high level performer a head case? No. They're one of the best in the country and the you know, among the best in the world. But it's because it's human nature. Our brain and body want to protect themselves. <laughs> you know? It's like well, why would we push ourselves to the brink of exhaustion to potential damage in this, you know, mile race? What good does that come out of it? The brain, of course, is going to be screaming at us to stop, to slow down because we're so far out of homeostasis that it's like, what are you doing, man? Like, why are you, why are you filling your body with acid? Like, we're at a good pH level. Right. We don't need this. This isn't, this isn't helpful. I don't want these micro tears happening. Like it could turn into a full tear. Hey, your heart feels like it's going to explode. Let's let's slow that stuff down. Of course, your brain wants to protect you. It's human nature. So we have to give it, you know, you have to train and teach these skills so that you can navigate and deal with that and like figure out how to do something that goes against off, often our, our kind of protective mechanisms and this is like expectation is a really difficult and important thing to manage because expectation can be the killer of joy and racing ideally is an excitement exciting moment opportunity and that's i think the best uh, posture to have 
going into that type of crucible is we want to be excited for race day. But so often, right, there's this expectation of, oh, I got to run this time or I got to keep face and run at least at this level or I got to get this place or this or that. And oftentimes those arbitrary numerical indicators mean little to nothing, right? I mean, how many times have you seen, and I think, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, right? The maybe in a tweet or a podcast earlier is the fastest time in the NCAA indoor for the men's, I think, 5K down to the mile did not win NCAs. The fastest, so the person who 3K mile 5K was like, all right, we're running fast. Oh my God, you ran so fast. You didn't win. You didn't win when it counted. So what's the point of the fast? The whole point of getting marks that are quick is to just give you entry to the next round, whether that's college, whether that's qualifying, whatever. We get so confused, I think, and taking this as, again, that face value. Oh, once you run a fast time, that's it. You're, <laughs> you're the, the king or queen, and someone has to knock you off your throne. Not the case at all, man. It's, again, going back to the import of why we're doing what we're doing and the excitement to really express yourself like kind of Prefontaine's thing as an artist and be excited to go through the suffering or the suck, excited to deal with that, that difficulty because that excitement teaches, right? My kettlebell coach, he's always like, the weight teaches. So when you lift a heavy load or working with a heavier load or something a little bit outside your comfort zone, having language and coping ability to be able to recognize that and go, oh, this is a signal. This is a sign. Yes, I'm going in the right direction because, ah, I'm being courageous. It's difficult now. I'm stretching my comfort zone. Stretching my comfort zone means I'm going to get better. Stretching my comfort zone means I'm going to be courageous and brave. Oh, I'm being brave. This is good. Now you've infused the athlete with these sign guideposts instead of being like, oh, this kind of hurts. Oh, this is kind of difficult. Oh, well, the time's not good. I'm not running even pace. Oh, you know, I won't, I won't be able to get the time that coach says I should get. And then they start to take a defeatist posture, right? And they start to recede. So all this kind of like work at practice, so often we just say, oh, we're going to look at the spreadsheet and yell the splits and you're good to go because you did the numbers it only gets us halfway there at best. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that is so true. And I think this is why this episode is so important is that in the crucible of racing, it's not just who's the fastest, who can tolerate, you know, whatever physiological fatigue the best. It's a skill. And the psychological mental side is a skill. And we need to coach and train that up just like we would any other component. So whenever I hear head case now, I think oh, that is like telling someone that they can't get better because their tolerance for acidosis isn't very good right now and thinking that you can't do anything about it. Instead of being like, dude, just do this workout and that ability will get better. Or, oh, I can't, I can't run five miles. Dude, just do.
do some training and follow this and you'll be able to run way longer than that. Don't fall into the trap of just labeling kids, labeling athletes as head cases because it it gets in the way. And that's the message I'd give as coaches is that I'd, I wish all coaches would listen to is that, you know, everybody can get better at everything. And, you know, I'll, I'll sum it up like this. Again, years ago, I did all these validated questionnaires on like stress mindsets, how people see stress, how people score on grit questionnaires. And I had every elite athlete I'd ever worked with filled them out. And I'm here to tell you that some of the best American runners ever, I would call them, you know, saw stress of racing for a particular period during when this was done as a very negative and damaging and, hey, I'm I'm almost afraid. And they were still racing well, you know, relatively. And the point of that is not to be like, oh, look at all these people, but it's to say everyone struggles with this stuff. Everybody can work on it. So don't use the cop out. Don't say, don't blame your athletes with the head case phenomenon. Be a coach who expands, grows, develops, teaches. And if you do that, good stuff's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, ego is a very interesting thing. <laughs> it's one of those, um, it's like fire, right? It can warm or it can burn the house down. And we live in an age where the ego of time or status or these face value markers has been inflated far, far uh, beyond necessary, in my opinion. And, you know, it can potentially distract us from what's really going on, living life, so to speak. And I talk about this a lot with the high school athletes I'm working with currently. And I'm saying, look, we're not racing the clock. We can go and race the clock anytime we want at practice. We're here to race the people. The people are what matter. Human beings competing against other living, breathing, unknowns, quantities your competitors that's the fun that's where the excitement is we can time trial all day and you can run you know and everyone everyone i even like you know was hearing this at uh you know a, a road race i was at the other this weekend everyone's like i much rather do this with other people than the virtual or time trial thing solo now the hard part is we use time and pace and all this these numbers as status symbols but I have seen people make big leaps because they wanted just to beat this one person and that person dragged them along. And I've also seen people recede because they didn't think they, they didn't have the evidence or confidence to think they could compete or be around and run next to this one person. And in both scenarios, their workouts indicated that they weren't ready or capable of making that leap, but they wanted to beat this guy or girl. And also, too, in the other scenario, like they were more than capable to keep pace with that athlete, but they just thought they couldn't. And this is the, where the unknown of the brain and the unknown of perception and the unknown of um, how we cope with thoughts 
really throws an exciting kink into coaching athletes and why it's a lifelong pursuit being you never get it right. It's the moment when we think we have it all figured out is the moment when, you know, when we realize we don't. <laughs> and that's what keeps the game young and fresh. But as a coach, you know, abdicating responsibility or outsourcing psychological mental preparation for doing difficult things, while it seems prudent, the reality is you do have to take some ownership of it. And if we are incapable of that as coaches, then that is actually a point of personal reflection where we need to say, okay, what do I need to do to level up and learn more about this? For, you know, very clinical psychological things, yes, like, you know, depression or OCD or stuff that's really, really tough, by all means, that does need intervention from a, a you know, a full-time practitioner in the, specialized in that field. But for simple things like race day anxiety, which is worrying about the future, or potential regret, which is worrying about the past. For those simple things, those are the human experience we all go through and share. And that's the whole point of competing and confronting and, you know, putting on the bib and getting ready to go when the gun goes off. Um, because they sport ultimately is a tool that should help teach us and help encourage us and give us opportunity to learn and grow and explore other dimensions. We don't need to default to it's just about what pace you ran, what time you got, what place you got. That to me, unfortunately, easy to do, completely um, diminishes and degrades the quality of the activity we're doing. And then when you stop running fast time, so to speak, you lose the excitement for it. And hopefully we are working with people who have a joy and enthusiasm for competition and exploring where their current boundaries are and coping with those boundaries throughout life at any age. And that's why I love seeing master runners who've been competing for more decades than I've been alive, still out there doing their thing because they found the secret sauce of life, man. They found the joy of it. And that's what we want to instill in is a joy for exploring and a joy for being excited about challenging oneself rather than a worry, a disappointment, or a um, blaming of an athlete for not performing up to some expected standard because we call them a head case. That's it. You know, up your game. Take the time to understand and learn about not just the physiological or the physical, but the psychological and mental so that you know and can help pass on skills in the arena for them to use. Don't choose the cop out. That's the message today. Don't choose the easy path. Don't take the cop out. Do the work so that you can help your athletes learn, grow, and get through these tough, rough spots that we all face. And you know, John, one of the ways you can do that, come on down to the Scholar Clubhouse, come baby. Come on down, baby. <laughs> that's, that's where we discuss these things, and that's where we go off on it. So if you want to talk about to other coaches who might give you some more insight on how to, how to get through these things, Sign up for the Running Scholar Program and I guarantee you it'll give you some new ideas on some tools and tactics and 
tips and tricks on on how to uh, teach many of these skills. It's the people, man. Like we talked about before, it's the people. Like Steve and I can go off all day, but you know, ultimately, being a practitioner means you're a, a people person. The science is great. The science informs the the papers, the literature. Yes, that evidence is all wonderful. But people are people, and we're better or worse because of the people we surround ourselves with. So this is an amazing opportunity to be surrounded with 300 plus, you know, uh, like-minded in terms of humble, exploratory, constantly updating, constantly curious, constantly um, excited to get better practitioners and coaching that will rub off on you, which will then rub off on your athletes. Exactly. Get on board. Thanks for listening. We hope it was useful and valuable, and we will catch you uh, next time.